Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gen X Playback, a show dedicated to the greatest generation of all time, so we think, Generation X. I'm Scott. And I am Sean. We are two brothers from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We're proud to bring you what we think will be an interesting series of conversations of everything dating back to when we grew up, going back to the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and what we consider a lot of great memories in our lives and and times that we really enjoyed. And the reason why we picked the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s is because, you know, Scott and I are proud Gen Xers, and the 70s for, you know, all of us Gen Xers represents our childhood. So hopefully we can get into um, bring back some nostalgia for um, listeners out there, uh, you know, especially when, when I, you know, I remember my my childhood in the 70s. It's a lot of television. You know, we kind of are a generation that grew up around television. Uh, music's going to play a, a major part in what we talk about here on Gen X uh, Playback. And, uh, you know, there's always movies and toys and things like that, 70s. And then the 80s is, you know, we're definitely going to get deep into the music. One of my good friends that just recently we were having uh, back and forth, we were playing YouTube videos of old TV commercials that we thought were funny. And he was sending me uh, commercials of Cheerios and I was sending him Miller Lite commercials. And it was just, it's fun to reminisce and, and think about those, those commercials that we enjoyed, those songs that we enjoyed, those sports teams yeah. that we enjoyed because we were so big into sports as, as kids and even adults. But a lot of great memories for us. And we wanted to kick things off because we're sort of celebrating pop culture. There's no better way than to celebrate pop culture by talking about pop music. And so that's going to be our topic for today, which is we're going to go back and, and revisit one of the charts from the 1980s. And the date that we selected was June 11th, 1983. So you may wonder why we selected 1983. And one of the reasons that we did select 1983 is because for me, and I think Sean, you'll agree that that was the really the influence of MTV started to take shape. We're starting to see in this countdown, we're seeing the older bands that were popular now being replaced by the more visual groups that were out there and is really starting to show on this countdown. And then as we looked at it, just even a month down the road, how completely transformed the charts were with the influence of MTV. It was, you know, and, uh, you know, MTV came about, was it 81 that mm-hmm. it first came onto the scene and, you know, it was a slow development, you know, it, it's not like it is today where everybody had access to everything. You know, the internet gives you everything back then. If you didn't have cable television, you weren't getting MTV. And on top of that, not every cable provider carried MTV. And that's why MTV ran their, their famous uh, commercial uh, promo series where it was, I want my MTV. And the idea was you called up your cable provider and requested MTV. So by 83, two years into it, you're starting to see people have MTV now in their households, and it is being reflected on the charts. Now, the question is sometimes, was MTV driving the charts, or were the charts driving MTV? I think we're starting to see now MTV is driving the charts, at least as we'll get deeper into some of the other years, but right now, you'll you'll see in June of, of 83, it's beginning to tape shape where that video that gets put out is what's uh, what, what is making songs go up or down on the charts. And we, we began to see the influence of the video with the popularity of the song and directly affecting record sales. 
when you're looking at some of the we even before we started to record here we were just kind of going over notes and we we're talking about some of the videos that we're going to talk about here on this countdown and just the evolution of videos at that particular time and how more produced they became how much more money these groups spent to to put out these products that became just as important as, in many cases, the albums themselves. It did. And if a record company did not get behind the band with a video, th there was a very slim chance that they were going to be successful during this period. And probably for the next 10 years when MTV becomes very dominant, it is um, interesting as we look at our chart. And we'll get into this here pretty soon. And just to see how there's some of the artists embrace the video very definitely. Some of the artists did not. They're still on the charts. But maybe a year later, maybe in 1984, those same artists would not have had the success that they, they did without a, you know, a big video. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm sure everybody is uh, patiently waiting for us to go through the countdown. So starting with number 20 is an artist that had several few hits in the 1980s. This was not one of her biggest, but it still did crack the top 20. And that was Solitaire by Laura Branigan. Laura Branigan had a big hit in 1982 pre sort of pre MTV, but she was making videos at this point. She was uh, of our research when we we're talking about these, these groups, she actually had one of the more produced videos on this top 20 list. Right now, when I, when the name Laura Brannigan comes up, you know, the song that pops into my head is Gloria. I mean, that's, that's the big one. That was her first hit. And I recently um, saw a little bit of a documentary on her and they uh, said that when she was signed, she was signed because of her talent, you know, her voice, but they weren't sure what genre she was going to perform in. And they kind of settled on this European pop style. And that's what Gloria was. And, you know, Solitaire is similar to that. It, it definitely has that kind of slick, uh, disco-y kind of uh, European sound to it. And at this point, it's still very popular. So that was number 20, Solitaire by Laura Branigan. Number 19 is one of the giants at this point in music in 1983, and that was Michael Jackson. Want to be starting something, probably not one of his more recognized songs, although still a great song off the Thriller album. But this just showed the power at this point that he was, uh, that had, that album had in terms of what it was generating, because I think at this point it was his fifth top 20 on the on the charts from what he uh when he released the album so all right so it wasn't one of the what the early releases i'll give you that but because gen xers those of you in the audience you, you know what, what we're talking about albums were a big deal so not only did we embrace the singles but we embraced an entire album so when i think of want to be starting something i think it's the first song of the thriller so when you would pop that cassette in uh, or if you had the, the vinyl and you put it on the turntable, side one, want to be starting something, you know you're in for Thriller. And so I, I can't hear the song and not think of, oh, this is, now I'm kicking off the album. Yeah. Number 18, another big name on this chart is I'm Still Standing by Elton John. This this song ended up going into the top five, just came up short of number one when it reached its peak. Elton John, this was considered more of a comeback album because he did spend some time away. Very big hit. And this was one of the first big videos that you could say he ever did. Yeah, he was always known as a flamboyant live sure. performer. Right. But this was really his first jump into the video realm. And as the story goes, that he was so nervous when he made this video that they got him 
rip roaring drunk <laughs> after just, his substance abuse issues, just to get yeah. him just to get him to uh, complete the video. But if you remember the video, it was it was fun. It's it's a good song. It's a good pop song. Uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin it, it's, know how to write a song. It, you know, and that's interesting that you say that that it was Bernie Taupin because while it was a comeback. And, off, you know, he still stayed with the same formula. You know, oftentimes people, when they, they, they mount their comeback, they'll go with a new team. But Elton John and Bernie Taupin had, had established this great report. I mean, some of the greatest pop songs in the history. I mean, we're going to talk about, you know, the 70s as well as the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, we definitely are going to touch on some Elton John, Bernie Taupin songs. And it's, it's interesting because... They had this great dynamic, you know, where Elton wrote the music and Bernie came up with the lyrics and it just flowed so well, whether they're writing about some serious subjects. Well, the previous song that was released to this one, I guess that's why they call it the blues. Mm -hmm. That I think that's a great song. And, and I, you know, I like that one a little bit more, but I, this is, this is a, a really nice tight pop song and it has all the elements that you would want in a early eighties pop song. You know, just a matter of, of transparency here, as when this song came out, I was 12 years old. And to see a live performance by Elton John, who was over the top, and as a 12-year-old kid, didn't really understand or recognize or even appreciate how good the songs were until I got to an older age. And then you start to realize, hey, these are these are pretty good. Now, I always did like, I guess that's why they call it the blues. That was, that was always a song I enjoyed. And then, but when you go back and look at Elton John's catalog of music, he's he's a guy I didn't really begin to appreciate until I got to an older age. Right, I would agree. It's the same with me. You know, he when he was at his peak in the early 70s, I knew of him. You know, I heard him on the radio. You would hear the big songs, but he was just another artist. It, 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 he, and you know, when going into 1983, when I'm Still Standing is on the charts, he's a bit old for a pop star. It's... It's, you know, traditionally you are kind of that young 20-year-old that when you're in, into pop music. And so he still was part of the old guard that was kind of making the transition. And he had a nice run in the 80s. As did a lot of groups that were popular in the 70s and had a very distinct sound in the 70s and then went for an even more distinct sort of a commercialized sound in the 80s. Sold a lot of records, had a lot of hit songs, alienated some fans, but... At the end of the day, who's who's the who's wrong? Who's to blame? You know, it's like they they obviously had success in the '80s with a different different uh, way of going at things. You know, you think of groups like Foreigner in Chicago, and how they really transformed their sound to get uh, and it worked. I mean, they sold a ton of albums and had a lot of hit music. And I personally find nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of like that. It's if you want to stay relevant in in the entertainment industry, you have to roll roll with the times. All right, number eighteen was "I'm Still Standing" by Elton John. Number seventeen is a one-hit wonder that we hear all the time. "Too Shy" by Kajagugu. That was another band that really capitalized on their look and the MTV video because when that song first came out, they were part of that. What ended up becoming, it started, I guess the British refer to it as the New Romantic phase, whereas we call it the Second British Invasion in America. And Kajagugu was one of those groups that sort of rode that wave from England to the United States. And this song was a well-crafted pop song. Mm -hmm. It was. And had the assistance of 
a stylized video. It's basically the band performing, mm-hmm. but just the the look and and the lead singer. It just it had all the elements of an early MTV video hit. And here you are seeing the example of where a video can can make a band and or make an artist. Where Lamal, who was the lead singer of Kaja Gugu, you know he was camera ready. He he not only was he a good looking guy, but also he was very trendy. You know he he had kind of the the trendy hairstyle of of the time, and and his fashion sense was right on. And I mean, you've said in the past that uh, you know some of those Brits got it, and when and that was part of the whole new romantic movement was they it they embraced the style every bit as much as they embraced the music. It kind of went together, and Kaja Gugu was part of that, and it was something that was very fresh kind of exotic to american audiences we had never seen anything like it and i remember this was this was a song in a video that that the kids talked about at school the next day when i went back and watched this video recently when we were getting ready for this broadcast i watched his movements on the stage and you talk about somebody's presence on the stage and i think what made that video and that song worked was his movements and how he kind of prowled the stage and you, and you hear that with certain performers and how they're able to just take over the stage and not just standing up there singing. And you see that with live performances a lot where a guy's just standing behind a microphone singing. And then there's another guy who's getting the audience involved. Freddie Mercury comes to mind. And Freddie Mercury at Live Aid, at, you know, Bono at Live Aid. The, the reason why those are the two most talked about performances from Live Aid is because both lead singers had some charisma. They weren't just standing there singing. They worked the crowd. You know, the, the famous story where, you know, Bonner goes out in the crowd during the song Bad and disappears and it was not scripted. They weren't supposed to do it. He did it because he wasn't feeling the crowd. Mm-hmm. So he went out to work the crowd. And what why I still like watching Freddie Mercury when he does that Live Aid performance is because his interaction and his theatrics and the way his he's he's moving his arms and, and drawing the crowd and there's something to that and you are you're right i mean lamal definitely had that when he was he performed number 16 on our june 11th 1983 top 20 countdown is the tubes which was one of my favorite groups back in the day i wish they would have been able to get more hit songs but she's a beauty their most well-known song not my favorite tube song. Talk to you later. Yeah, I love that song. Yeah, I agree. One of the first things that I bought, but "She's a Beauty" is a great is a great song, and the and the tubes, they're sort of an underrated band from that L.A. area sound because they definitely had that L.A. sound, and there were groups that came out around the same time. You're talking about the Motels. You're talking about the Go Go's. It was a very sort of just kind of an airy sound to it. A lot of a lot of guitar work. Huey Lewis and the News came from that. Uh, sort of that era and came they became uh, one of the better known um, LA area groups they were Bay Area San Francisco but uh, you know the Tubes really good musical band I mean those guys could play and little Gen Xers if you may remember this but the Tubes played a very vital role in a certain movie that came out in the 1980s they played all the music to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure they were the they were the music to the uh, to that soundtrack, they were when Bill and Ted were playing. That was actually the Tubes. Oh, okay. Fee Way Bill is one of the three, uh, I guess, the wise people that are sitting in the future when they go to the future. Okay. One of those is Fee Way Bill, the lead singer of the Tubes. So, I digress. 
let's go back to the song. But She's a Beauty, another one that really took advantage of a smart video to um, you know, go through the charts. They did. And, you know, so here's something interesting with She's a Beauty and also the song that you referenced before, Talk to You Later. So Fee Waybill, lead singer of the Tubes, once again, another charismatic lead singer, definitely when you thought of the Tubes, that's who you thought of. Uh, but also the, the, the two other co-writers on that song, when She's a Beauty, are also the three of the, these three same writers co-wrote Talk to You Later. And it was uh, uh, Richard Foster, and it was Steve Lukather. So the, the you know Fee Webber, Richard Foster, and Steve Lukather all wrote those songs. You know Richard Foster, there's a really interesting Netflix documentary on him and kind of his rise, and he was responsible for changing the sound of Chicago. You know Chicago was this hugely popular band in the '70s, very much an instrumental type of band. They, you know, they had the horn section, and then he made them in the early 80s into very much a modern pop band. Well, he kind of did the same thing with the tubes. And he, you, can, you can kind of see that sense pop, uh, you know, pop sense that he brings to it. And he, he went on, and you know, he's, he's had super successful career with, with like Josh Groban and Michael Buble. But yes, uh, Richard Foster is responsible for She's a Beauty, and it is, it's, it's one of those songs that it's just, it's just so tightly written. And I think Steve Lukather, you know, who is, who was one of the main members of Toto and one of the top session musicians of the 1980s who play, he happens to play most of the guitar in Thriller. There's a reason why it's a, a lot of guitar riffs, but it's still, it's still very tight and very poppy. One of the terms that I usually like to refer to songs as over time is is the song durable and when i say that i i'm i'm asking if that song has held up over time and there are some pop songs that let's face it they just don't they don't last they're not songs that you want to keep playing over and over again but i have to say she's a beauty is one of those songs that when you hear it on the radio and they do play it a lot it's one of those songs that i don't mind i right. still like to listen to it. right right it, it's it's a song i've heard a lot and there are times where I might skip over just because I don't want to burn out on it. But it, you know, it, it won't be long before I come back again. All right. At number 15, Never Gonna Let You Go by Sergio Mendez. A little bit of the old guard here. Yeah, this for is, sure. This is uh, Sergio Mendez is very well known in the 60s and 70s. This was sort of the end of the run for Sergio Mendez. And I think where MTV sort of change things for a performer like him they didn't do a video for this song now this song did extremely well but it did yeah this 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 ended up going into the top five but for sergio mendez as a performer this was sort of the sort of the end of the of the run for one of the popular singers or, or performers from before now the question that, that i have for you or with this is do you think this is a song that back in 1983 people our age were listening to? Or do you think this was popular because a little a slightly older group was still listening to this style of music? It's it's very much a a slow, one might say beautiful type of ballad. I don't know that the groups and the artists we were into were performing that style of music. No, I would agree with you because even when when the evolution of music in the 80s sort of took that turn, even the slow songs had a little bit more of a hook to them. Yeah. 
this was definitely melodic. You know, you, you touched on that. And it's, you know, build a fire around the fireplace, you know, get a bottle of wine. Yeah, I could I could see maybe somebody's parents sitting down and listening to, you know, a Sergio Mendez album as they're unwinding at the end of the night. So Yeah, well somebody in their twenties, you know, you know, somebody or in their in their thirties. It it's you're still listening to the charts. You you know, you still like what's what's you know out there at the time, but you're not what we would say would be in the the core of Gen X, where at this time, you know, we're twelve and fifteen years old. Yes. So I, I don't know that you know, putting another log on the fire is, is what I'm thinking about at, at that time. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad song, but I, because it was not, it played on MTV, it did not have an MTV video. Well, remember, with me being 12, I was just starting to like girls, yeah. but I wasn't, you know, at the point where I could ask them to dance. So right. I, I was uh, not, not quite there yet. And, but. you know, and I don't even know that this song would have been played at, junior high dances or at roller skating. roller skating rink there yeah. you go yep overlook roller skating rink that's right big song at number 14 uh one that's very well known and a very well-known singer in prince is little red corvette this was really his first foray into mtv he had videos out before he had controversy out uh want to be your lover and this one really made him a household name this was uh you know he had hit songs before but this Little Red Corvette was an enormous song for Prince, and his career took another step. He had, he had hits, out. but I think they were only on the soul charts. I, I, I don't know if he really, I mean, he may have peaked at the bottom of the pop charts, but I, I don't think that most people really knew who he was. And when we talked about Kajagugo and Too Shy in their song, and we talked about Lamal being a performer where he sort of prowls around the stage... Is there any performer that does that more than Prince as a performer? And I think the directors did a nice job in this video because they really did sort of capture the essence of the fact that this guy is such a good live performer. Let's just let the camera sit back and roll. He could sing and he could dance. Uh, you know, it, at this time, Michael Jackson is ruling the world, the the airwaves, the, the, uh, the, the TV waves. And here comes this guy, Prince. Who's who is a good singer is um, and and in this video in Little Red Corvette you see his dance moves and it's like yeah, this guy maybe this guy can give uh, Michael Jackson run for his money and isn't it really the first time you know you talk about music that comes from different territories you have New York City you have Philadelphia you have Los Angeles San Francisco Detroit with Motown this is really the first time you hear of somebody coming from Minneapolis and. It, he was really the first of what ended up being a nice little run of performers that were based in that area. Right. And there is a, um, a YouTube series out that I recommend people watch if they want to learn more about Prince. And it is a, um, it's put out by sunset uh, studios, which is, or sunset sound studios, which is where Prince recorded a lot of his material. Now they talk about it in, in the session, uh, the, the one video that I watched where he did not record Little Red Corvette or 1999 at the studio. He had already, he already had cut that back in Minneapolis, but the rest of the album was basically cut there. And it's fascinating because they interview the, uh, the lady um, uh, who, who was his engineer, Peggy McCreary. And she kind of gives you some background information and just how strange 
of a guy Prince was, how what a, what a musical genius he was, but just what an odd guy he was. And it that he she said that when he recorded, he performed. So he danced and did his basically his live show in the studio when he was recording this. So when you go back and you listen to Little Red Corvette, uh, he probably was doing the dance moves right there when he was recording. With those heels on. With those, and, and, and that's nothing. <laughs> he, she talked about that. He, he did wear the heels to the studio. Yeah. All right, number 13, one of uh, mine and Sean's favorite groups of all time, Daryl Hall and John Oates with Family Man. Good song. This is off the H2O album. Yeah. I love this album. I, I have it on vinyl at home. And this is where Daryl Hall and John Oates started to jump onto that. You know, we talk about MTV. They, they, they really, they had videos ready to go. And, and Daryl Hall had talked about that before. John Oates talked about that before. In John Oates' uh, autobiography, he said, they were prepared for MTV. Their manager at the time was Tommy Mottola, who ended mm-hmm. up being the president of CBS Records. And Tommy saw this as an opportunity, and he said, we're going to be ready for this. So when MTV launched, they had, I believe John had said they had about four or five videos ready to go. So they, they really jumped on that at an early stage and saw that as an opportunity to help their careers and to make them more popular, more current more uh recognized and this it when the h2o album came out you go from h2o to big bam boom they're arguably the biggest one of the biggest groups in the world at that time and i think you take a step back to the previous album private eyes which really is what launched them uh, in, into another level those those three were probably the peak those three albums that you just mentioned private eyes h2o and big bam boom that is probably where they would have been a household name. They would have been easily recognizable. It, here where we're at, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, not too far from where uh, uh, Daryl and John grew up, they're not walking down the street and uh, not getting mobbed. <laughs> so it was, you know, th- this was this was them at their best. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Family Man is not a song they wrote, you know, which is they're they're proficient songwriters and they're, they're uh, other people will cover some of their songs right you know like every time you go yeah, away paul young by paul young and i, I hate to admit it, i kind of like his version a little bit better um but still other people cover their stuff but here they did a cover and it was um a guy i'd never heard of mike oldfield is he it's it's out there it's on youtube and he he's another uh he's he's another artist um, kind of like Sergio Mendes, where he doesn't sing. He's just kind of there playing, playing the guitar. And he has a, a singer with him. But it's, you know, it. they basically took the exact same song and recorded it. But I, it's it's a good song. It's a good album. It, um, you know, they also had Maneater on that album, 101. One of, one of my favorite things to do is sometimes I'll get lost in Live from Daryl's House. Yeah. And watching the old episodes, I just, for the life of me, I can't understand... I think Daryl Hall could have been one of the best music producers of his generation because what impresses me so much about Live from Daryl's House is when these groups come in and they and they share music with Daryl Hall and, and Daryl's band is when the band gets gets involved and then they do the duets and they put the music together. It sounds so much better. I, I listen to, and no, nothing against Jason Mraz, but that, that episode with Jason Mraz is my favorite episode of 
because the quality and, and just what his band brought to it and what they enhanced with already good songs is to me, that's my favorite uh, LFDH episode of all time is just how good they made J- they made Jason Mraz sound even better than he already was, which was great. And with, with, uh, you know, hollow notes, you know, everybody knows Daryl is, you know, does most of the singing and it's all, you know, it was kind of like a running joke that, you know, Oates was just kind of long for the ride, but it, it's interesting that, Daryl recognized that he's better with John Oates around. And, you know, John Oates would, you know, joke and say that, you know, I'm the highest paid uh, backup singer in all of music. But he definitely is, is as much a part of that sound as what Daryl is. Okay. And I know both you and I have seen them uh, fairly recently. If you get the chance, folks, go out and see them. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of, I think they're a treasure to, that they're, they're performing at such a high level. And, in many ways, they're they're better than what they were 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, the, the, the band is phenomenal. Okay, let's move on. So, at number 12, Faithfully by Journey. This video was very well received because it was different for the type of videos that were coming out at that time. Mm-hmm. And this was actual footage of the band on the road. Yep. Brand new territory, something that Bon Jovi made very popular later in the decade. But this was really one of the first times that you actually saw a band hanging out backstage, out on the stage performing. It was kind of a backstage glimpse as to what was going on with the life of Journey. And it was a huge song. So when I said that Never Gonna Let You Go is a song that Gen Xers probably weren't listening to, maybe they're they're older brothers and sisters or parents might have been listening to it. Our generation was listening to faithfully this was something that would have been played at the roller skating rink. You know, Absolutely. this, this is something that if you were starting to get interested in girls, you were going to pop that song in there and hopefully set the mood. But, but this is, this is definitely one of the, the monumental ballads of the early eighties. This next one's a couple's skate. Yeah. Couple's skate. All right. Number 11, Electric Avenue by Eddie Grant. This ended up being a big hit going, I think, number two. I think that's where it peaked at. It peaked at number two. And for Eddie Grant, this was a big song for him in the United States. Unfortunately for him, he was all set to have a follow-up hit to this. And there was a song that he had released for the movie, Romance in the the Stone. Stone. And they had a video. They even did the video for mm-hmm. it. And unfortunately, for whatever reasons, I don't know if it was contractual, but the movie studio didn't put it in the movie. Because we saw it on MTV for a while. Yes. And then they ended up going with uh, with other music. And it was on, and then it sort of disappeared. Right. The follow-up hit. And I think had that had it had the backing of the movie, you know, the guy may have been looking at more of a career. But this song in particular, it was unique sounding when it came out. It was definitely, a, a, I would say, a video that was unusual uh, in, its, in its look. It was done sort of grainy looking video. And, but for Eddie Grant, it's that the reggae sound and the fact that it was a little, it was a little different made it stand out. I, I'm glad you used the, like the, the word unique because when I was looking at, at the video, when I went back and revisited it here recently, my response was the same response that I had when I saw it for the first time was, well, that's different. And 
it was something that, as as I have here in my notes, it, it uh, power of MTV. Yeah, but it also it, it sort of celebrates what made Gen X kind of cool to us is you had Eddie Grant out there, and not much before that you had Dexy's Midnight Runners would come right. on Eileen, and that sounded unlike anything else that was on right. the charts too. But it just goes to show that I think for Gen Xers we embraced a song that we liked. We didn't necessarily have to like the song because of the group. If we liked the song, we liked the song. I knew nothing about Eddie Grant when I saw that video for the first time. And I remember thinking, that's cool. Well, let's crack the top 10 now. Number 10, one of my favorites, Rick Springfield and Affair of the Heart. Now, Rick Springfield is typically identified by the um, the female teeny boppers. Mm-hmm. But again, let's take into account that I was 12 years old. To me, Rick Springfield was very cool at the time. And he had the, a couple of albums. He won a couple of Grammy Awards with his first two albums. Jesse's Girl was a massive hit, still played today. Mm-hmm. But this album, for me, is doesn't get a whole lot of, of what it's due because there are some really good songs on this album. And Affair of the Heart was the first single to come off of, off of this album. It had an accompanying video. Unfortunately for, for Rick Springfield... Uh, videos didn't necessarily, I don't think he had a lot of success with videos. However, what they did do well was put his face on television, which he had already done earlier with General Hospital. Noah Drake. And I think what I, what made me think about um, Rick Springfield was this guy, it, he didn't hit it big until he was older. Right. You think he was in his, I think he was in his 30 or 32 when Jesse's Girl came out. This was a guy who had been trying to make it in the music business for a good 10 years before he actually got a hit song. And I think it was in part by how he looked. Oh, you know, that, it didn't, it definitely did not hurt. When The fact that he was an actor on TV right. and then when he started doing these music videos and people got to see, hey, you know, he's not hard on the eyes. That helped get him a lot of female fans. But for me, as you know, as a twelve-year-old kid, I really liked his music. I really, he his music resonated with me, just in terms of the groove and how simple they were. They were just simply done songs, but they were well done songs. And it was a three-piece band, and I liked the fact that it had a guitar and it it had a, a good bass line and a good drum line, and that's the stuff that stood out to me as, as a kid. This had a little bit more of a keyboard sound to it. It was a little more. I think he was kind of going for a more futuristic. Right. sound but for me it's still still checked off all the boxes well this uh it, and the album's living in oz um and you know i like really like this song at the time i still like this song affair of the heart i think it is it is a song that that is uh has stood the test of time not everything does stand the test of time sometimes it can get very dated but this is a song that that's really good but Human Touch, which was also off of this album, you know, I like that one a little bit better. And, um, you know, if, if you you look at kind of the body of work that he was doing at the time, if you go, the previous album was the the follow up to uh, 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 Working Class Dog, which had Jesse's uh, Jesse's girl on it, and the big one off of that one was Don't Talk to Strangers. So he was kind of you know had the string of, of hits going, and he's kind of you know. Uh, the 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 darling of of the record company at the time, and he's you know it's a string of hits. But what's interesting about this is that it was just so well produced, and I, I believe it was Keith Olsen was the producer who who did most of his work. He, if you go back and you kind of look at some of the albums, 
there's some big names that played on the album. So an example would be the the backup singer uh, featured prominently. On, well, there was two. There was basically two two guys who were the backup singers: Richard Page, who became the lead singer of Mister Mister, Mister, yeah, and then the other one. Let's see, it was Tom Kelly. And Tom Kelly, for those of you out there, and some of you will know this, he wrote Madonna's uh, "Like a Virgin." Okay. So Tom Kelly became one of uh, the biggest songwriters. He, he has a whole lot of songwriting credits, but go back and look at, at the run through the eighties. Um, Tom Kelly is on working class dog, but then Richard Page comes on board and that sound, that backup sound, which to me is as interesting as, you know, Rick's lead vocals. That is, as you know, it's these two, you know, pretty well-known session guys. And then you throw into the fact you talk about uh, guitar. His guitarist at the time uh, was a guy named Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce, uh, some of you may know him because he has a YouTube channel and he, he will, he'll tell stories. He's one of the top current session guitar players in the world. So he, he, he's played with, with basically everyone. And yeah, so, you know, and he was a guitar player on Iris. So, you know, they definitely had a, a team in place. And I think this is an example of what happens when you have a really nice, tight group working together. That was number 10. At number nine, Don't Let It End by Styx. You know, I actually saw Styx play last summer after 40-odd years after, you know, 50 years after And that was the first time out. you saw them? That was the first time I ever saw them. It was a fun concert. Now, granted, Dennis Young is no longer with the band. They Who a, sang lead on this song? Whereas they were trying to go into that, as as DeYoung tried to explain, it was trying to take the rock opera of the 70s with Tommy and sort of create a new version in the 80s. And so Mr. Roboto was born. It's the whole well, the, concept the, the album. Kilroy was here, I think was the name of the album, right? And right. Mr. Roboto was the, was, the, was the first single. Right. Yeah, so the the first single came out and it was it was a hit song and this was also a hit song. Sticks knew how to write and and perform songs. Probably what a lot of fans will remember about the Kilroy was here album was just it was a little out there and people who saw their live performances, not everybody was a fan. Although it's funny because now it kind of became cool again. And the band who refused to play the song Mr. Roboto in concert for decades now plays it live in concert as they did last year right? when really? I saw them. Yeah. Really? Okay. Because I heard Dennis DeYoung interviewed and he said he thinks that had they released Don't Let It End first, things would have been different. You know, instead of having Mr. Roboto as the lead, and that's what I immediately think of when I think of the Kilroy Was Here era that they were in. And uh, we talked about how Eddie Grant, I said that was different. Well, Mr. Roboto was different, but I didn't react to it the same way. It it made me and my friends laugh. Okay. And, and I don't know that's what they were going for. Now, I like the song, but I didn't get the video at all. That, as Like I said, referring again to being 12 when the video came out. Yeah, I was. it was quite confusing. Oh, it was. And I, I remember uh, me and my buddy, uh, Greg Lapp, shout out to you, Greg. And we, uh, you know, the next, you know, we're at school the next day. We're going, domo, 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 domo. <laughs> and, you know, it. I, I don't think that was the the, the anthem Six was going for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, number eight. Good song by a, a band who had one, one good album in the United States. Now, they did have some hits over in Britain. But it was Naked Eyes 
Always something there to remind me. This is their best known song. Not necessarily my favorite Naked Eye song, but Promises, 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 Promises. Yeah, was I like my that favorite. song a lot better. Yeah. So they weren't they weren't a one hit band, but they were again part of this new romantic slash second British invasion, and they had a look. They had a. It was it's two guys. Which isn't it funny how a lot of the groups that came from Britain at that time it was usually two buddies. One was the lead singer, usually pushed in the front. I think mm-hmm. a wham. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. And the other guy's sort of the musician, uh, you know. And I think of the band Go West, same type of setup because they came out out, out around this time also. So you have the guy on the front singing the songs. You have the guy in the back playing the music. It just they're just kind of, but they're known as being a duo. Sure. I guess you could say they're like the British version of Daryl Hall and John Oates. Yeah, but, yeah, maybe. But this this was a good song and and a video that. Was one of the the British bands when they were doing their music videos at the time. It's almost like they were trying to tell like a little mini movie, like a little story. And the video when I watched this recently is he's playing like a reporter and he's sort of following after somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like kind of you have a start, you have a beginning, you have a middle, and you have an end to the video. And he's just kind of lamenting the fact that he didn't get the girl, and he's yeah, it's depressing, but. Uh, the fact is that that video was was uh, and, and you notice that with a lot of British bands is they were a little bit more advanced in video making because they had Top of the Pops, and Top of the Pops really doesn't get credit for being one of the first shows in the world that actually had videos being shown way before MTV. And you'll hear a lot uh, uh, from a lot of these British artists where where they were our art school students. And you can kind of see that as well because they're into the visuals, not just the sound. This is kind of the, the time where you go from the early videos from 1981, where they're just performance videos. Now you're starting to see the, uh, the singers, uh, the, the artists, now they're acting in the movies and they're playing out a role and they're telling a story through the video. And this is the, the, very, the very beginning of that. And then we're going to go through a period of a, you know, about four or five years where that's mostly what's expected from you in a music video is to act out a story. Coming in at number seven, Thomas Dolby. She blinded me with science. Definitely. Uh, you talk about videos and for Thomas Dolby, it was kind of a goofy song. Yeah. So he kind of made a goofy video, but it worked because it, it was memorable as a kid. You're running around. School going science, still do it, yeah. And so it was in. I don't think Thomas Dolby, when he talks about when I when I've read about him doing interviews about that era, I think he he kind of laughs it off. I mean, he certainly has had a successful music career behind the scenes, sure. And he has definitely made he made a ton of money out uh, developing software. He's he's taught as a professor down at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Right. Yep. He actually was the keyboard player on Foreigner's 4 album. He was. And uh, probably two of Foreigner's most memorable songs, he was the one doing the uh, the, the keyboard on that. Uh, I've been waiting for Girl Like You is, you know, one of his, you know, big moments that nobody really knows about. And he's also on Def Leppard's Pyromania. He's, he's un- he, he went under a pseudonym and it is a Booker T. Boffin, I think is what he went by. And... He was known as a studio ace in the synthesizer world. And this is, 
this is kind of the early days of uh, where where synthesizers are kind of are becoming big, and it was you, you kind of had to be like a computer person to operate them back then. And you know, science, you know, that's what Dolby was bringing to it. You know, it's interesting. I remember watching Live Aid, and I remember when David Bowie came out, and he introduced Thomas Dolby as one of his band members, and I was like, Thomas Dolby from She Blinded Me with Science, and and if you can have a massive cultural changing hit like he did where i don't know anybody from our generation that if you go to science that would not know immediately what we're what we're referencing so i i I think for him he would probably look back and say yeah i've had a pretty good career good heavens miss south america you're beautiful all right coming in at number six you talk about uh, uh a transformative song, something that left its impression on the music industry, and that was Michael Jackson. Again, this is a second entry here in the top 20 for, for this chart, and that was Beat It. This was the follow-up to Billie Jean, and you know we talk about groups that or singers that need that hit. They have a hit song, all right? It's hard to get the next one. Now, Michael Jackson had a long career up to this point. Remember the mm-hmm. Jackson 5? Sure. Off the Wall came out in 1980. really good album. He won all kinds of Grammys. And when Thriller came out, obviously Thriller was a huge song. I think I think Thriller may have been one of the most influential songs in the history of MTV. As well. And with Beat It, one of the things that really caused that to happen when you mentioned about The Rock, the fact that he went and had Eddie Van Halen play the guitar solo on Beat It definitely caused a huge crossover. And so the... The rock darlings of the time would have been Van Halen. And if you have Eddie, you know, giving some credibility to a song, there was an automatic built-in audience. It's similar to what would happen a few years later when Aerosmith and Run DMC get together. And this, you know, these were arguably the two biggest stars of their genre at that time. You know, Michael Jackson is the biggest pop star in the world. And Eddie Van Halen arguably could be the biggest rock star in the world. And they came together on a song that's super memorable. You know it's memorable when Weird Al makes a parody of you later on, and in some ways, Eat It may be just as good as, as Beat if not better. Might you know, even be better. It yeah. may, might even be. That's that's a, a discussion for a different day. But whenever I think of the song Beat It, uh, first thing pops in my head, Eddie Van Halen and the guitar solo. Second thing that comes into mind is that video. And the video where it's kind of that West Side Story uh, you know, we're, we're going to two two sides are going to come and rumble. And it it really was taking that music production to a whole new level. And I think for the first time you saw Michael Jackson dancing with a with a professional dancers and being every bit as good as them. You saw Michael Jackson dance on stage and everybody knew Michael Jackson. You know, he had done the moonwalk before Beat It came out. So we all knew the guy could the guy could dance, but. You got him in there with these these professional dancers, and he is just every bit sure. And that was the comment that the director had said at the time too: is people don't realize how good, how talented he is, just as a dancer, right? And that he he would learn. These people were working on dancing for their entire. That was their livelihood. That was their whole career. Michael Jackson would come in and in ten minutes learn the routine that they had spent weeks and months on to to perfect. Sure, so. sure. So it it. Uh... It's a song where it still gets played a lot, and and I had to take a break from it once in a while because I don't want to get burned down on it because it's it's such a good song, and, and I I don't ever want to get sick of it, but definitely one of the 
the biggest songs to come out of Generation X. At number five, Lionel Richie with My Love. This was his solo debut It was, album. this album, yeah. But Lionel Richie is one of my favorite singers of all time. I have a couple of his vinyl albums at home. And I was a fan of the Commodores. Oh, I was a huge a fan. Huge, huge fan as, of the Commodores. As a kid, you know, we really enjoyed the Commodores. That's the first album I ever purchased. I, and I remember, as you remember, I got that stereo. And uh, we... I, we were debating what was the you know you got you got to you know send a brand new stereo off like a like a ship so you want to christen it, and I remember going through the record collection and you and I selected the Commodores Midnight Magic, Midnight Magic. to be the first uh, record played on my new stereo. Yeah. Not every not every solo artist is successful when they leave a band. You think of oh, one of the first ones that comes to mind is Blondie with Debbie Harry. You know she went out on her own, didn't have a lot of success. It's sometimes for for. When a, when a band has something going on and then they go to a solo career, they can struggle. And the Commodores were a one of the biggest acts in America at the time. Right. And so to have your main songwriter and main performer leave the group and go out on his own, it, it definitely, he changed the tone. He went softer with his debut album and then can't slow down. You know, he went more to a pop sound. That was, that was a huge album. But this really was one of the, one of the songs that kind of got his career going. And to me, I kind of lumped this one in with Sergio Mendez as well. It's it's not a song that I remember a whole lot of people that that I was friends with would have listened to. If they did, they weren't telling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it and maybe maybe they were. Maybe it's maybe it, it was something that people played uh, on in their Walkmans and uh, you know at home in their rooms. But it's not something that would have been discussed a whole lot. So it kind of had a little more of that that adult easy listening mm-hmm. sound. Number four on our June 11th, 1983 Top 20 Countdown is Overkill by Men at Work. First, this was a debut song off of their second album, which was Cargo. And for Men at Work, I watched the video on this. Yeah. And I I really enjoyed this album and I enjoy this song. And I was trying to watch what Colin Hay, what, what the approach was to the video for this song because it obviously looked like they were... The first album came out and it was huge and they won a Grammy for best new group. And then all of a sudden they come out and he definitely tra- changed the tone for that video. It was more of a serious. It was dark. It was mysterious. It was, it was, it was, they weren't being the goofballs that they were in the first set of videos that when down under came out, uh, you know, and they're out there in the sand and they're you know juggling and jumping around like kangaroos that, you know, they, they, we're coming off as like comedy cut-ups, and then this album comes out, and it's completely different with this video. Now, who can it be now? I mean, it might have been a little bit that way. It, it it was upbeat. It had more of a beat, but it was, you know, a little little mysterious as well. But this definitely was, you know, something when, when you looked at it, it it, it did not have that, um, you know, that cheesy factor at all. Because it wasn't just uh, Land Down Under. But if you remember the, the video for Be Good Johnny, mm-hmm. I mean, that was pure, you know, kind of cheesing it up. And, I, I you know, the, you know, Men at Work, they were they were a huge band at this time. And I, I remember this song in particular with this album coming out, you know, MTV back in the day would have the world premiere videos. And I still have a memory of discussing this with people um, saying, hey, you know, on this day. Men at Work's uh, Overkill is coming out in world premiere video, and I, I, you know, I, I can't go somewhere because I have to be at home at 
seven o'clock, whenever it was, to watch this specific video. Yeah. Yep. All right. Number three. A group now that they were one of the biggest acts of the early 80s. Huge. You could put them up there probably in the top five in terms of record sales in the early 80s was Culture Club. And Time Clock of the Heart. I remember seeing uh, Culture Club perform for the very first time Mm -hmm. on MTV. And Boy George was certainly not what we were expecting because we had heard the song before we saw the video. Right. And then we actually saw the video for the first time. Boy George, way over the top uh, performer. But when I went back and watched the video for Culture Club, again, he has that essence of those performers that they know how to engage their audience. And he just has this way of kind of making you draw attention to him. Uh, same as like uh, Lamal with Kazagugu and we talked about Freddie Mercury, but there's, there's definitely an it factor to some of these performers. And that's kind of what drew me to that video when, when I, when I went back and watched For time. Song. Yes. Yeah. It, I, I remember the, the first song I ever heard was, do you really want to hurt me? And I thought, okay, it's, it's, it, it's interesting. It was a really interesting video. Uh, I'd never seen anything like Boy George. And then this song came out like, I like that song. Because to me, as somebody that kind of liked that Motown sound, and, and this kind of had that sort of feel to it. It was that early 80s type of Motown sound where even Smokey Robinson kind of had that sort of sound going on at the time. You would hear that in some of DeBarge's music mm-hmm. that would come out later. And it definitely has that kind of bass kind of... Um, uh, a feel to it as well. I, I liked it. This is this is probably the the Culture Club song that I still go back to. Okay, all right. At number two, and this was a huge album when it was released. And David Bowie doesn't didn't speak very highly of this album later in life. Say so that's a shame. This is his best album, and, and this was yet this, my favorite, album. without a doubt. Let's dance at number two was the kickoff song to this album that was shown on MTV. And again, Bowie. Bowie was somebody who was a veteran of presence and visuality, as he did earlier with Ziggy Stardust. And that was way before my time. Yeah. So to me, this was really my first glimpse of of David Bowie as as a solo act. I don't really remember stuff that came out before that. Yeah, that song Fashion, where they, they had a video... But that was very artistic. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily a, a pop song. And I, I, I saw an interview with Nile Rodgers, who many of you would know from Chic, and he was the producer and, and the writer on uh, Let's Dance. And he said that he went to meet with David, and David said, I want a pop record. I want to have hits. So this is an album specifically written for hits, and there were some monster hits off of this album. And Nile Rodgers, you just you happen to mention him. Nile Rodgers produced a lot of acts in the '80s, and there's a there's a definite sound to him. He's, he definitely has a swing to his, and he played on a lot of these songs. Yep. Nile Rodgers, to me, was very cool. He still yeah. is. He, you know, with Daft Punk's, uh, you know, fairly fairly recent band. I mean, that's still that same kind of sound that he has. You know, interesting. Um, I, in this video that I saw, uh, you know, he was doing a video for Fender Guitar, kind of talking about, you know, some of his big hits, and he, and he mentioned this song, and he said that 
when this was written, he, he was they were coming out of the disco era. And so Chic was a big disco band. So when he came, he said, this was a, a song that David Bowie originally had started and then he was working with. And he said, had it been a few years earlier, he would have given this funky kind of disco sound to it. He goes, but we were in the, the era where people were bashing disco. So he decided to go with straight ahead guitar sound, but with a delay. And that, that's what you hear when that, that guitar sound, he just lets the delay kind of give it that sound. And it is uh, a sound that, you know, I still think holds up really well. And so you have Nile Rodgers kind of, you know, laying out these basic tracks. And then you have this, this brand new unknown artist by the name of Stevie Ray Vaughan who comes on there and just plays this killer guitar solo. And no one knew who Stevie Ray Vaughan was before the Let, Let's Dance album and, and you know, what he did on this song in particular. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who don't know who Stevie Ray Vaughan is because he, he had this, this short career, like a six-year career, before he went down in the helicopter crash. Prolific, though. But Stevie Ray Vaughan is just, you know, one of the greatest guitar players ever. Uh, he's, he's definitely in the top five of, of Gen X. You're talking, you're talking one of the greatest blues guitarists of all time. Right, and, exactly. And he came from Texas, which was not well-known at that time for blues music. It was typically Mississippi, Tennessee. It was considered the Delta region. And he was one of the first guys to come out of, of Texas. And but yet, kind of like Eric Clapton, in terms of you know British blues, it doesn't matter where you came from if you're great at blues. And to me... Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Wow. Just an unbelievable. Guitarist. So you basically have those three come together. David Bowie, Nile Rogers, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Three of the giants of that era came together and make this incredible song and album. It, you know, I'm, I'm, it's kind of sad to hear that David Bowie didn't like this yeah. uh, because I think this is his best work where what he was doing before I knew who he was, you know, because I'm being a little older than you. I, I knew who he was, but it wasn't my style. Right. But this, when I immediately latched on to the Let's Dance album. Okay. And finally, coming in at number one, the number one song in America, June 11th, 1983, Flashdance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara. This was off of the Flashdance movie. A hit soundtrack had, had a few songs on there, particularly we, we had talked about, uh, you know, I commented on Maniac by Michael Cimbello. That mm -hmm. was a hit song that came out just a little bit later. This held the number one position. What I remember about this song and to tie our love of sports into this is the Philadelphia 76ers in 1983 had just come off winning the NBA championship for the first time since the 1960s. So they come off the airplane in Philadelphia and we're watching it on television and Channel 6 Action News or whoever we're watching at the time is having to come off. And what's playing in the background as they're getting off the airplane is Flashdance, What a Feeling by... Irene Kerr, I guess they sort of adopted that as their as their unofficial theme song. But um, the movie itself kind of kind of fueled, I think, the mm -hmm. soundtrack and vice versa. And right. Irene Kerr, who had a hit previously with Fame mm -hmm. and, the, and the movie that came out, scored another big one with this. She did. And, um, you know, I, I, Irene Kerr is, uh, you know, it turned out that after Fame became this huge hit, she ended up, uh, you know, being involved in some some major litigation against uh, the the record company for not getting her royalties off of this, and as a result, she really never never 
was heard from again. You know, she claimed from what I heard in this one interview that she was blackballed, and that as a result, you know, any anything she tried to put out there never really went anywhere. That you know, whether that's the case or not, the fact is, in 1983, in June, in the summer of '83, you could not get away from this song. You, if you listened to any radio station and kept it on for two hours, you were going to hear the song at some point. And I wonder if, if that may be an episode for us to talk about because of the movie soundtracks in the early 1980s and how good they were. Yeah. There were a lot of... To write a song for a soundtrack was a big deal at this point. And it became more of a big deal based on, in my opinion, you had the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack. Mm-hmm which evolved into the Flashdance soundtrack, which evolved into the Footloose soundtrack. And there were some really big... It got to the point where Kenny Loggins, you know, he talked about mm-hmm. how he was the, the king of the soundtracks. Right. Yeah, at one point, that was something that was sought after by artists. They would, they would leave their band like Mike Reno and would go perform a song for a soundtrack. You're right, Top Gun. And... Um, it, it was very, very common at that time to combine uh, movie clips in with the uh, with the music video. And so you would really have this foundation where the, the record company and the movie uh, company would work together with the artist and kind of go in together and, and develop this, this product. There's so many videos from this era that would have appeared in movies where it was nothing but a big commercial for the movie. I mean, right. and this one, and this one in particular was was that Irene Cara doesn't even show her face in this music video. No, it's, it's Jennifer it's, Beals it's throughout throughout Jennifer, the whole movie. Yeah, it's, it's or for all the video movie clips. Yep. Yeah. yeah, So that's our countdown. Uh, Flashdance number one song in America. Hope you had a nice stroll down memory lane. Uh, for us, yeah, we just like to go back and relive some of these songs. We talk about them on our own all the time. We hang around the dinner table with our with our parents and our family and and they make fun of us because sean and i will sit there and we'll go through a countdown at easter or at christmas so hopefully you had an had an enjoyable time with uh with us as we uh look back at 1983 we wanted uh, uh what were some of the groups that you were definitely into at the at the at this time in 1983 15 year old sean high yeah so that's kind of what the you know this segment is and i have written down here sean at 15 so, you know, you got to keep that in mind. So it's, you know, what what was in my Walkman basically in June of 1983? You know, I'm getting ready. Uh, you know, it's, you know, around you know beginning of high school, freshman year. It's, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, peak time for me when I'm, I'm into music. So what I have down here, and these are my, my, my top four artists, and I'll kind of give you some reasons why these are important to me. The number one band that I would have said at the time that I was into was Def Leppard. And that's because Pyromania came out in 1983. Uh, you know, I mentioned it earlier with Thomas Dolby playing on it. This was uh, that album. When I heard it, that just changed my perspective. You know, I, I like to play this game with people and I'll say, you know, all right, name the one album that when you heard it, it's like your mind is just blown. And for me, when I heard this, I think it came out when I was 14, I, I heard this album and I couldn't get enough of it. And for me, you know, from top to bottom, it's still a fabulous album, you know, Mutt Lang produced album. 
Well, and, and you talk about Mutt Lang too, because when when MTV first started, and you and I are watching these all these videos that are coming from groups from from Britain, there weren't too many of them that had a rock edge to it, and Def Leppard was one of the first. The other the other individual that probably stands out to me in terms of not being necessarily pop, but having a pop following was Billy Idol when White Wedding came out, and this was along the same the same era, but. Def Leppard, when Pyromania, when we first saw Photograph, when it first came out, mm-hmm. I just remember thinking, man, that sounds so cool. Yeah. And you had the heavy metal bands of like Quiet Riot, which was also, you know, starting to get a lot of airplay at that time. But to me, Def Leppard had, it had a smoother sound to it. I think that had a lot to do with Mutt Lang. Yeah, I, oh, he, absolutely. He really had a way of crafting uh, a hit song with a rock sound. So you think about Mutt Lang at, at that time, you know, he, he's, he's coming off uh, working with ACDC. You know, he produces Back in Black, you know, biggest album. I think it's the number two album behind Thriller. Uh, if not the 80s, if not all time, it's the 80s. It's, it, it's right up there. So he, he's working with, with ACDC. He's working with Foreigner. You know, Foreigner's huge with Foreigner 4, that Mutt Lang produced album. He works with Def Leppard on the previous album, High and Dry. I really liked High and Dry, but it had a little more of that raw ACDC rock kind of sound to it. I remember uh, a documentary where they, they talked to Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, and I guess Mutt came to the guys and he said, I want to try something different. I kind of want to go from this harder rock sound and, and polish it up. And that's exactly what he did. And Pyromania combined that hard rock sound that I really liked with that pop sound that I liked. And I know we've referenced that a lot here, you know, uh, tonight that with what, that we like pop music. And to me, this was the best of both worlds. So when I was 14, 15 years old hearing this, I couldn't get enough of it. And just to add on top of that, I wonder if maybe the sound of Pyromania, the album rubbed off on bands like even say Van Halen, because at that point, Pyromania comes out, 1984 comes out the following year, and it starts to have a little bit more of a radio-friendly sound to it. Right. And I think that's what transformed Van Halen. I wonder if they were paying attention to the success. Oh, everybody of pays attention to everybody else, and, and you borrow a little bit from, from everyone else. And, and this was definitely of the, that time where you made a complete album. So yeah. I, I, was, I went back and I looked at it, and you, know, you, you, you started off with Rock Rock Till You Drop, a hard-hitting rock song, and you end it with Billy's Got a Gun. Deep album cuts, in the middle are the hits. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you, you, you mentioned Photograph, and Foolin' was another big hit, and Rock of Age is another big hit. They would get bigger with their next album, um, Hysteria, but this was really what broke them in the in the U.S. in particular, and and put them on the charts. And uh, I, I've said to you this before, where there was that show on MTV called Friday Night Fights, and they would always pit one video against another one. And Photograph would just win week after week after week. That MTV had to retire Photograph so that it was it was a fair fight. And you know, basically, you call in and vote on your favorite favorite video. Come on, people, let's pick something different. <laughs> we need something else. So, you know, so that's why number one was part. You know, that was the most listened to tape in my my cassette player at the time. The police would have been probably number two with synchronicity. You know that that was still riding really high, and you had every breath you take. Sure, that was a big hit. 
Uh, I, I really liked it. I still like it today. It's been played a lot. The songs that I probably really liked the most at the time were King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Finger, uh, it's Synchronicity 1, Synchronicity 2. I mean, I like the whole album. But after I got my little fix of listen to, to Van Halen, I probably went and, and put Synchronicity into it. And it just still, to me, stands up. Um, you know, I saw the police when they, they had their last run. Uh, it was like 2008, I think it was. And, you know, this song still sounded great. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, Journey. Journey and Frontiers. Frontiers was the the album that came out in 83. It had some monster hits on it. We've already talked about Faithfully, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, ballad of that era. Uh, This was the follow-up. Frontiers was the follow-up to Escape. It's got the big hit that everyone still thinks of today, Don't Stop Believing. I I liked it at the time. I'm getting a little tired of it now because it's it's being played a lot. But I did. I I liked it. I liked the Escape albums. I was primed. I was ready for when Journey came out with Frontiers, and I remember going out and getting it right away. It had you know, Separate Ways. I think that's, after I saw the video for Separate Ways, which I really, really liked, mm-hmm. it, but it had other songs on there. Um, you know, After the Fall was a, was, a, was a video. I don't know that it really had a lot of radio play, but you know, in the MTV world, it was something that we saw a lot in Chain Reaction was another song I really liked. Center of My Love was on that album too. And, and that, and that yeah, right, there's another one, you know, another huge hit that I, you know, there were so many that I, you, know, you forget about them sometimes. And that was filmed, actually at the time of early MTV, a lot of concert footage film mm-hmm. was done in Philadelphia. And that was done at JFK Stadium. The old JFK Stadium, right. Which no longer exists, but... Which is where Live Aid was held. Yeah, exactly, so... Which is now where the Wells Fargo Center uh, stands. Will be for however many number of years until they tear it yeah, down. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, there you have this. That was number three. So, Def Leppard, number one. Police, uh, number two. Journey, number three. And then number four was Van Halen. So, Van Halen did not have an album come out in 1983. You know, they still would have been running out the the material from the Diver Down album. A lot of people that are the Van Halen fans, if they're going to rank the David Lee Roth era six Van Halen albums, usually put Diver Down down towards the bottom. I liked it. I liked Diver Down. I I, I was into it. I, I liked the their cover of Pretty Woman. I liked the cover of Dancing in the Streets. Um, they even had a, a cover on there, Where Have All the Good Times Gone by the Kinks. Uh, you know, another Kinks cover. You know, they were they were known for You Really Got Me, a Kinks cover. And they went back to the well again and went with that. But it wasn't just Diver Down. I'd already kind of established that Van Halen was my band. So in 1981, they had Fair Warning. So I'm, I'm, you know, in the summer of 83, it's only two years. I'm still listening to Fair Warning. I'm still listening to Women and Children First. So it's there probably wasn't a day I wasn't listening to Van Halen at some point. But... At least for me, at 15, in the summer of 15, uh, summer of 83, when I'm 15 years old, that's what I was listening to. Those are the bands that I probably would have sketched out on my Trapper Keeper. And I think, you know, for the most part, myself at 12 in 1983, you and I were pretty in lockstep. We, we listened to a lot of the same stuff. Now you, we, def, we each had our own favorites. And although I did agree with you on, on two in your list, that being the police, Def Leppard, yes. Yeah. So my other two, when I talked about the biggest artist of that era, and it goes to Michael Jackson, and Thriller was on the radio constantly. And as a 12-year-old kid, I was eating up whatever was being played on, for us, it was FM 97, 
uh, when we were kids in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Michael Jackson was played a lot, and the videos were being shown a lot. And as a 12-year-old kid, I wanted to see it over and over and over again because I, I saw his, him as a performer in, in Thriller, and I know you know people remember Michael Jackson later in life, but fortunately for us as Gen Xers, we really got to see what I think was a really, really, from a performing standpoint, this guy was an unbelievable performer. And just the the visual abilities that he brought to his songs and to his videos really set him apart from everybody at that particular time. And it started with Billie Jean because you had a guy, for the first time, you have somebody out there who's, who's the actual singer of the song, but is out there dancing like he's a professional. And then you go to Beat It where the video concept is kind of starting to evolve into what it became there in the mid eighties. Uh, for me, he was, he was about as, uh, I had the thriller tape as, as a kid and it was, it was popular music and there was nobody better at making popular music at the time than Michael Jackson. I don't know if there's ever been anybody better ever. Uh, you know, definitely not, not just at, in 1983, but throughout his entire career, throughout the Gen X um, generation, the seventies, eighties and nineties, he, he's at his peak. It, it's, you go. You mentioned it earlier in the broadcast. You start out with the Jackson Five, and then go all the way through his solo work through the '90s, and he's still putting out hit after hit. And they're not just hits, but it, they're it's quality material. And it's you know he's he's known for putting on a good concert, and he's he's just somebody that is was the consummate professional. I I, I think as far as like even in pop culture. I went back and I watched some of those old Pepsi commercials mm-hmm. featuring Michael Jackson. And it's it takes you right back, you know, when they talked about, you know, the, the, the Pepsi generation. And it they definitely played off of Michael Jackson. And it definitely, um, you know, summed up kind of what was going on at the time. That the fact that the moment Michael Jackson would have walked into the room or bumped into you on the street, there was immediate excitement. Right. Because he was recognized by he was the most recognized person in the world at that time. Right. I, I, I don't think there's anybody else who, who you could say outside of maybe um, Gandhi or the Pope. But in terms of somebody who was in the entertainment business, he was the biggest person in the world at sure. that time. Yep, absolutely. So that, you have your top three. So you said you have Def Leppard. Def Leppard. You have the police. The police Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. And my fourth is Duran Duran. And they were just kind of coming into their own when, when the um, Hungry Like the Wolf video television and mm-hmm. when i heard that to me it was something that turned my head i heard that sound i saw the video and to me with the way that they shot the video which was done in sort of a james bond-esque type setting where they're in an exotic place right and they're chasing after something although we have no idea what it is mm-hmm. but to me i thought those guys were super cool and then hungry like the wolf comes out and then rio comes out and to me, it's like they're they're out in the out in the beach. They're hanging around with pretty girls, mm-hmm. and I thought those guys were as cool as it as it got. And they not only did they make good songs because Simon LeBong, very underrated singer. All those guys ended up they were known as good musicians coming into that band, right? And then they became sort of typecast as kind of a quasi boy band. And I think it was undue because individually as musicians, those guys all played really well. And Simon Le bon was a good singer. 
He was, you know, unfortunately for him, he had that one moment at Live Aid where his voice cracks on View to a Kill. And, you know, he's still getting ribbed for that all these years later. That aside, you're right. He, he has a good voice and he was a good songwriter. And he has a, as a front man, he had a really good presence. Each of those band members individually were kind of known in the the scene over in England at the time as as some of the best players that, you know, uh, that that were, you know, in that genre of music that was going on. And I remember they talked about even the drummer when Roger Taylor mm-hmm. joined the band that it gave them instant credibility because he was the guy you wanted. Now you have MTV. And when we talked about the police sort of being at the forefront of making MTV bigger because you had a band as good as they were that looked like they did. Now you have Duran Duran a band that sounded good as they as good as they did and looked good it sort of made that MTV uh, importance and and having that that stylistic ability that much more important in the charts and interestingly you know because sometimes these paths different paths will cross with one another in 1983 Rio is out big album really good album you know I've, I've mentioned to you it, off mic already i think it's the greatest album cover potentially of the era i just think it's it's the you know the the cart it's not even a cartoon it's just this this drawing of, of a woman's face i just think it's just so well done and it, the, the colors that is used just kind of really sums up the colorful early 80s that we were going through they come out with this album you know they they had some previous work as well you know i, I was you know girls on film was the first song that i really liked from duran duran because it had a little harder edge. I mean, Andy Taylor, the guitar player, is a little more prominent with that. But then they they hire Nile Rodgers, of all people, who comes in and then produces them. I think the first song he ever did was Wild Boys. So in a lot of ways, the best is yet to come from their production. And they get a little funkier. And uh, John Taylor gets featured a little bit more on bass. And it's they, they're they real, really young in 1983 when Rio is out. And it, it was, it's been interesting to watch the fact that they've kind of grown and matured and they've gotten better. They were accomplished back then, but you can't help but get better when you're just playing hundreds of dates a year. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because I think John Taylor commented that when they made the album Rio, they'd never been to South America. They, right. They'd never been there. And, and yet they came up with this concept of, of an album that was, you know, Sort of emphasize the the colors and the um, what they were what they thought a sound in, in uh, Brazil might be like is you know that sort of an exotic sound and I just thought it was interesting hey you know they they wrote this album yet they'd never been there before well so. and not only that I heard John Taylor say one time you know they go and they do the big tour I think it was the Rio tour I don't think it was prior to Rio but they do the Rio tour there you know they they they're just mobbed around the world there they said sometimes they couldn't even hear themselves up on stage because of all the screaming from all the girls in the audience. Now, you have in-ears now, so you can you could combat some of that. But you go around the world, you're, you're getting mobbed, and he said, but he's not really making any money, so he goes home, he's living with his parents. Yep. And he says he goes home, and his dad's like, oh, you got to take out the trash. And he's like, I've just been on the road where people have been waiting on me, and they, they idolize me, and I'm back taking out the trash again. Yeah. yeah. All right, so, Sean, review recap your uh, your top 4 so my top 4 in the the summer of 83 well june 83 in particular would have been Def Leppard uh number 1 followed by The Police followed by Journey and then I close up my top 4 with Van Halen The Mighty Van Halen and my top 4 of all time would be Michael Jackson The Police Def Leppard 
and Duran Duran. Maybe it helps you think about what your favorite groups were back in 1983. Maybe you weren't even alive in 1983, but hopefully the music stands on its own and that you really enjoyed it. Next time, Sean and I will be talking about a different topic. Probably not music, maybe TV, maybe movies. Probably TV. We'll figure something out. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Top 20 Charts from June 11th, 1983. We want to thank you for listening to Gen X Playback. My name is Scott. My name is Sean. And we are two brothers that were happy to talk to you. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again, everybody. See you soon. See you.